0: Before we get going today, I would like to thank my latest supporters on Patreon, Lainey, Anne, and Petra. Even with us now in the home stretch of the podcast, your support means so very much to me and it really does help the show. You're all great and are in fantastic company alongside my other 80 patrons. If you would like to join these amazing ladies, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Podcast where you'll find all the instructions that you need. Now, I think it's fair to say that I have been slightly neglecting these social media recently. I'm in the busiest part of the year for work, and so I have had little time for anything other than work and writing this podcast. That said, I'm going to make a real effort to put more up for you to enjoy. I really appreciate all of your posts and comments on the Facebook page. You certainly know how to make a guy feel loved. Speaking of which, I'd also like to thank everyone who has been leaving iTunes reviews. I love reading all of them, and some of what has gone up has been incredibly flattering. I've had some constructive criticism on there as well, and I always endeavour to get better, so I take it all on board. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can ask on social media, or email me at queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 59, Henrietta Maria of France, a Catholic on the throne. In 1632, George Calvert received a charter from King Charles I to found a new colony in the New World, He had already been a governor of Avalon in Newfoundland in modern Canada, but now he sought to create his own colony further south, a place where Catholics could practice their religion in peace, away from the tumult of the Old World. After a lot of wrangling and difficulty, not least from the Virginians, he was granted land north of the Potomac River. Given its intention as a Catholic haven, there was only one name that really seemed appropriate. It was named for England's Catholic Queen Henrietta Maria. They called it Maryland. Having your own province, and now of course a US state named after you, is a pretty decent legacy for anyone to have, but it's hardly unique for royals of the time. Indeed, every US state on the eastern seaboard south of the Mason-Dixon line, other than Florida, is named for an English king or queen. But Henrietta Maria, known as Maria or Mary to the English, has a far more difficult and interesting legacy than that. The history of anti royal revolution in the modern era so often involves unfairly scapegoating queens for being Machiavellian monsters who dominated their weak willed husbands. It happened with Tsarina Alexandra during the Russian Revolution. Before that, it was Marie Antoinette in the French Revolution. But well before either of them, there was Henrietta Maria, the wife of the first English king to be overthrown and replaced. By a republic. Henrietta Maria of France did not have what one might call an ordinary life, even when compared to her predecessors and successors as queen consort of England. Daughter of an assassinated king, she grew up in the backbiting court of her mother, Maria de Medici, before marrying a protestant heretic in Charles I of England. Her time as queen saw the most tumultuous times the kingdom had seen, more violent and divisive by far than the wars of the roses had ever been leading to having to endure a widowed exile on the continent before her triumphant return after the Restoration. Given the importance of this period of British history, it is unsurprising that Henrietta Maria has faced a great deal of scrutiny from historians down the years. Much of it, not all that complimentary. People writing during and immediately after the British Civil Wars, also known as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, saw Henrietta, as I described earlier, as an overbearing woman who dominated her weak-willed husband. This view of her has had long legs, lasting until the 1970s, where, in true revisionist style, historians such as Quentin Bone argued that actually the opposite was true. She wasn't all that politically influential at all. Nowadays, we have somewhat of a more nuanced approach, moving back closer to the original view, but seeing her influence more in the round, portraying a woman who had strong influence across the board, for good and for bad. Evidently, To tell her story, I'm going to need a few episodes to get through it all. The first thing that I will say is that, much like when I covered the Queen's of the Wars of the Roses, this is not going to be a history of the British Civil Wars, or the constant French Civil Wars of her early life, and especially we will not be going into great detail on the Thirty Years' War that ravaged the continent for the rest of her life, for that matter. The whole thing is too big and too complicated, and frankly has been well done by other people. If you'd like a really good podcast on the British Civil Wars, then I would strongly recommend Mike Duncan's first series, The Revolutions podcast, which covers that period super well. Indeed, my only criticism of it is that I don't think he actually mentions Henrietta Maria once across any of the episodes. So I guess this is going to be the perfect gap filler. For the Thirty Years' War, then there are a few, but Zach Twomley's When Diplomacy Fails podcast does a good job on that one. I will, of course, feed you bits and pieces of the background as we go along, it will be absolutely impossible to understand what is going on without it, but it will necessarily be concise and to the point. Today, though, we are going to focus on Henrietta Maria's early life, her marriage to Charles I, and the very early parts of her reign as Queen of England, Scotland and Ireland. This episode is packed with detail, with a lot of groundwork being laid, but it is all so very worth it, let me assure you. In fact, I would even go so far as to hazard that Henrietta Maria is the most interesting Queen of England that you have probably never heard of. Okay, after making that bold claim, I reckon that is enough build-up, so let's start the show. Princess Henrietta Maria of France was born in late November 1609 at the Louvre Palace in, pa- in Paris. She was the sixth and final child of King Henry IV of France and his wife, Maria de Medici. Henry had come to power in the tumult of the French Wars of Religion and had spent his regime desperately attempting to bring some order to the chaotic kingdom. He had been a Protestant, but he converted to Roman Catholicism in order to become King of France. Like her predecessor as Queen of England, Henrietta Maria's sex was a great disappointment to her father. Though given that he already had two healthy sons, this seemed a little churlish. He said coldly that he would have given a 100,000 gold crowns, for her to have been a boy. She was, however, given the honour of being named for both of her parents. Henrietta's life got off to a terrible start, when, six months later, her father was assassinated by a Catholic dissident during his wife's coronation. This left her indomitable mother as regent for her son, the nine-year-old Louis the Thirteenth. Maria had been completely excluded from courtly power by her husband during her time as queen, as he showered attention and gifts on his various mistresses, but now her time had come. Maria's regency was marked by ceaseless intrigue, politicking, backbiting, corruption, basically everything. And it seems that she did not really have the training or ability to truly do the frankly impossible job of trying to keep the Kingdom of France together at this time. Given all of this chaos, it is unsurprising that Henrietta spent most of her childhood away from Paris, at Saint-Germain-en-Laye, about 20 miles to the west of the capital. She grew up there with the rest of her siblings, other than King Louis. These were, in descending order of age, Elizabeth, Christine and Gaston. As you might expect for a princess of France, the main purpose of her upbringing was to prepare her for a life of queenship. She was raised to be an ardent Catholic by her mother, and her upbringing was strongly influenced by Carmelite nuns. The Carmelites were a mendicant religious order that dates back to the 12th century. This order strongly believed in asceticism, the idea that to achieve spiritual goals and to become close to God, you need to leave a very frugal life. Her stern governess, Madame Mongola, was not a woman to be trifled with, as this letter written by Henrietta to her shows, "'I pray you excuse me if you saw my little sulky fit which held me this morning. I cannot be right all of a sudden, but I will do all I can to content you.' Meantime, I beg you will no longer be angry with me. Her childhood was a very traditional one for a royal girl at the time. It was very heavy on riding, dancing, singing, and morality, but she did not receive really what one might call an education. Her brothers both received private tutors, but these opportunities were not extended to her and her sisters. We have seen over the course of this podcast that daughters tend to receive similar educations to that of their mothers, and this is definitely the case with Henrietta as Maria de' Medici was not a woman who held much store by learning, and certainly did not see it as a necessary part of raising a girl to be a queen. Henrietta, though, did not spend all of her childhood away from Paris, as we know that she and her siblings were known to take part in theatrical performances at court, but this part of her life was largely spent isolated from the action. As usual, writers at the time were not much interested in the princesses, instead choosing to focus in on their brothers, So what we know of this part of her life is frankly sketchy, and that is before we get to the fact that, as the youngest child, she was considered the least important. In the early 1620s, after her mother had returned to court after a period of enforced exile, it was decided that it was time to start laying the groundwork for her marriage. Maria was an expert matchmaker, and had already managed to gain high-profile marriages for three of her other children. At the time, France was, for a brief moment, pursuing a pro-Spanish foreign policy, and so the two eldest children were married to the children of Philip of Spain. Louis was married to Anne of Austria, who despite her name was Spanish, and Elizabeth married the Spanish king. After her other sister was married after the Duke of Savoy, it was Henrietta's turn. Louis, Maria and his ministers had two main aims that they wanted to achieve with this marriage. Help with their battles against their Protestant Huguenot subjects and produce heirs that may one day rule France, as Louis's marriage was currently childless. This meant that there were two basic options, depending on which problem was considered the most pressing. If your concern was mostly dynastic, then the best option was the Count of Soissons, a loyal subject of the king and a member of his royal house. But he would offer no help with the Huguenots. But what of an English marriage? England was currently offering aid and harbour for them. If they could be brought onto the royalist side, well, that would be a great help. Okay, so we will briefly leave Henrietta at this important turning point in her life and travel across the channel to see what her future husband was up to. We covered Charles in bits and parts in the episode on his mother and of Denmark, but let's very quickly catch up. He was nine years older than Henrietta, being born in 1600. He had not been the intended heir to the throne, but after the death of his brother, he became Prince of Wales in 1612. With that all settled, it was decided that it was time for him to get a bride a woman who would become Queen of the Three Kingdoms. Now, the politics of the international marriage market at the time was dominated by the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War in 1618. Now, at the time, no one knew that this rebellion by the Protestant subjects of the Austrian Habsburgs against their Catholic overlords would become the most destructive conflict in the history of medieval and modern Europe until the First World War. But it does enter our story here at this very early stage. You may remember that Charles' sister Elizabeth had married the Count of the Palatinate. Well, he had since become King of Bohemia, but was defeated by the Habsburgs at the rather Tolkienian-sounding Battle of the White Mountain and forced to flee to the Dutch Republic, one of the few free Protestant realms on the continent, as they were still fighting the Habsburgs for their freedom in their own War of Independence. It therefore became a key tenet of Stuart foreign policy to restore Elizabeth and her husband to the Palatinate and Bohemia. But, to do that, they needed powerful continental allies, and their best option was Spain. Therefore, Prince Charles went off with a couple of friends to Spain to win the hand of Maria Anna. On the way, he stopped by the French court and actually met Henrietta Maria very briefly. The Spanish match was, though, a complete non-starter. Neither side were very keen on marrying a member of the opposite religion, and there were considerable diplomatic problems relating to the escalating war in Germany. Despite very intense negotiations, which went on for about four years, it all ended in worse than nothing. It ended with a declaration of war on Spain, and an expeditionary force being sent to Germany to recover the Palatinate. As I said, to fight this war, England needed allies, and the obvious place to look was the Habsburg's oldest enemy, France. Feelers were sent out to Paris, and while the French did initially suspect that they were merely being used as leverage to gain a better deal out of the Spanish, they were quickly convinced of the seriousness of the English intentions. King James dispatched an ambassador, who gave the following report of a meeting he had with both Maria de Medici and Henrietta. Now, at this time, after the marriage of her sister, Henrietta had gained the title of Madame of France, and it is by this title that the ambassador refers to her in his report. The Queen and Madame came thither, where they stayed a great while, and it was observed that Madame hath seldom put on a more cheerful countenance than that night. There were some that told me that I might guess at the cause of it. My Lord, I protest to God, she is a lovely, sweet young creature. Her growth is not great yet, but her shape is perfect. Henrietta was very keen on the match, which is hardly surprising. I mean, she was barely a teenager and was given the chance to marry a dashing foreign prince and later to become a queen. It was all very alluring. Now, if you cast your mind back to the episodes on Elizabeth I's suitors, you'll remember that the major sticking point in every negotiation with a Catholic prospective husband was the issue of their religion. Would they be allowed to practice it? If so, how? And with whom? Well, things were a little different when it came to a king marrying than a ruling queen and so Charles and James were willing to be a little more flexible. They promised to provide Catholic chapels for her in every royal house, to allow her to be served by an entirely Catholic household, and basically allow her full practice of her faith. In a separate secret treaty, they also promised to lift anti-Catholic laws in England and enact that most revolutionary of actions, religious toleration. This, the French claimed, was necessary in order that the Pope would give special dispensation for the marriage, This was a significant moment, as it was the first time that a Catholic princess had ever been given permission by the Pope to marry a foreign Protestant prince. In return, the French promised to help England recover the Palatinate and offer a dowry of £267,000. You may, though, notice that no mention was made here of the Huguenots. As I said earlier, it had been an aim of the French to ensure that the English stopped supporting these Protestants. But to do so, they would have had to have signed a full and formal military alliance, and they weren't willing to do that. They knew that if they did so, England would demand that they go in for a full invasion of the Holy Roman Empire to recover Bohemia, and Louis and his ministers had no intention of doing that. They still hoped that the marriage may in the future lead to a change in English policy regarding supporting the Huguenots, but nothing would be set in stone. Now, this marriage had its supporters at court in London but in the realm at large, the reception was more mixed. One parliamentarian wrote that, quote, the English so detested the Spanish match, they were glad of any other which freed them for fear of that, but went on to say, quote, wiser men feared that much danger would ensue to the gospel and true religion by this marriage. And that was a moderate view. Another contemporary wrote that, quote, the marriage pleases few and is opposed by infinite passions. The Catholics do not favour it, partly because they desire no other union than the Spanish, partly because they think that the French ambassador is not acting entirely for their advantage, and while, quote, good Englishmen were in favour, quote, the English in general and the Puritans abhor this alliance. Despite their objections, the whole thing was signed and stamped by both parties, and permitted by the Pope by February 1625, but everything was briefly thrown up in the air a month later, when King James died, this meant that all the documents had to be re signed, but at least now it was clear. Henrietta Marie of France was to become the Queen of the Three Kingdoms. All through this, Charles and Henrietta were exchanging letters, and she is known to have requested a portrait of him, which she took to bed with her every night. She was very keen on the match, as I said, and her letters to England were well received by the court and probably helped to speed things along. On the signing of the treaty, Charles wrote the following letter to Henrietta, I have not dared to take the liberty of testifying to you by a single line the great impatience with which my spirit has been tormented during my long waiting for the happy accomplishment of this treaty, until I receive good tidings of it, begging you to be assured that, besides the renown of your virtues and perfections, which is everywhere spread abroad, my happiness has been completed by the honour which I have already had of seeing your person, although unknown to you, which sight has completely satisfied me that the exterior of your person in no degree belies the luster of your virtues. And I'm delighted to say that we have Henrietta's reply, Sir, the impatience which you show me you have had during the time that the treaty was pending, and the satisfaction that you tell me you have received on the news of what has been accomplished here, give me certain assurance of your goodwill towards me as you represent it by your letter. The king, my brother, and the queen, my mother, being willing that I should receive these testimonies of your affection. I will only say that if that has not an assured foundation in all the good which it makes you imagine in me, at least you will find a readiness to show you that you will not oblige an ungrateful person, and that I am and shall always be your very humble and affectionate servant. As usual, the marriage procedure began with a proxy wedding. With the Duke of Chevreuse standing in for Charles, Henrietta received a French wedding that was as magnificent as one could ever imagine. No expense was spared, as the French sought to show off to the English ambassadors, who were present, just how important and regal a princess they were bringing over to their kingdom. It took place not inside, but just outside the doors of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, so that both Protestants and Catholics could watch, and was presided over by a cardinal. Afterwards, the king's chief minister, a different cardinal, Richelieu, threw a feast worthy of the magnificence of France, and it was all played out to it was apparently a deafening cacophony of music. There followed the bizarre ceremony of consummation, where Chevreuse got into bed with Henrietta, albeit fully clothed and very briefly. I could talk about this for much longer, as the details are fascinating, but I think it is high time that we got Henrietta over to England. The man dispatched to escort her over to England was George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, the former favorite come lover of King James and now Charles's foreign minister. He went in every splendour that England could afford, ensuring that the French knew that their princess was not marrying into some uncultured backwater. After a week of balls, banquets, pageants and festivals, Henrietta departed Paris to huge crowds. Her brother accompanied her a little of the way, then leaving her mother and sister-in-law, two queens of France, as her most august companions. Together with Buckingham and a huge entourage, they travelled to Boulogne. She had been provided with a very rich wardrobe and a huge retinue of well over a hundred French attendants, all of which left a great impression on her. She knew that she was something. She was a Bourbon. She was a princess of France. And now she was a queen. When she landed in Blighty, she was taken to Dover Castle, and there, after a welcome night's sleep, she met her husband for the second time. So, because of all the politics, diplomacy, and complexity in getting us here to this point, it occurs to me that I haven't actually given you a proper description of Henrietta. So, now seems as good a time as any to examine just what the English found when they met the new queen. Well, she was 15 years old, she was slight, with soft curling brown hair, black eyes and, quote, a countenance that opens a window into her heart. She was fairly short and was apparently charming and disarming with a very quick wit. This was shown off almost immediately upon meeting her husband. Charles had remembered her being rather shorter and spent quite a deal of time staring at her feet, seemingly wondering if she was wearing high heels. Noticing where his eyes were resting and realising why, she spontaneously raised the hem of her dress, saying, quote, "'Sire, I stand upon mine own feet. I have no help by art. This high I am, and neither higher nor lower.'" She, of course, spoke this in French, for she didn't speak any English, nor was she particularly familiar with English history or culture. It had not been thought to be her destiny to marry into a heretic kingdom, and so no such preparations had been made during her upbringing. Now, given the fact that French was widely understood at court, there was not a huge problem, at least in the short term. It was announced that she would be known as Queen Mary while in England, linking her to Charles's grandmother, Queen Mary of Scots. But I will continue to refer to her as Henrietta, if nothing else, because we have had loads of Marys, and she is our only Henrietta. The English also got a sign early on of her soon-to-be legendary temper. When they set out on the road north, Charles insisted on only English ladies being allowed in Henrietta's coach, but she gave him a right rollicking at the exclusion of her Lady of Honour. They spent their first night together, as man and wife, in Canterbury, in a very muted affair. There was none of the bawdiness that usually accompanied the bedding ceremony. Only two attendants were permitted in, and they were only there to undress Charles. After that, he bolted all the doors, meaning that we have absolutely no idea what happened that night. Though, we can have a guess. Charles apparently emerged the next day looking happy. Henrietta seemed decidedly disappointed. Again, mirroring the coronation of her predecessor and of Denmark, there was an outbreak of plague in London at the time. This meant that instead of being paraded through the streets, she was taken in by boat. She was greeted by the sound of 1,500 guns in a salute, which, quite frankly, sounds like overkill. She was aboard a great barge and followed by many others carrying important nobles, merchants and other key figures. In true British style, it was pouring with rain, and Henrietta herself was feeling a bit peaky, but that didn't stop the crowds who came in their thousands to see their new queen on her barge. Indeed, there was one rather unpleasant incident when throngs of people on one boat rushed to the edge, causing it to capsize, though apparently there were no deaths. The voyage ended at Whitehall Palace, which is today situated between the Houses of Parliament and Trafalgar Square. Then, there was a magnificent feast, where the marriage was confirmed, declared to be lawfully consummated, and Henrietta proclaimed queen. Now, you may notice that she hasn't yet received a coronation. Well, that was partly down to the plague, but it was mainly for religious reasons. The main characteristic that, above everything else, would define not only her reign, but to a great extent that of her husband's, though for a different reason, was religion. She was a Catholic in a kingdom that, in general, loathed them. While she was not an ardent follower of the old faith, she was willing to forego some of its strictest laws. She was not willing to compromise on the basic facts of her Catholicism. The English coronation service was, in essence, a religious service. It was carried out by an Anglican priest who gave an Anglican mass. It would be absolutely out of the question for her to have a Catholic ceremony. So therefore, it will not surprise you to hear that she never did receive a coronation. And indeed, she was not present at Charles's either. A special screen was provided for her to watch it from behind, as was traditional, but she did not turn up, which, as you will shortly see, did not go down so well. But bigger problems were to come. As I mentioned earlier, Henrietta had come over with a great number of fellow French, all of them Catholics. Now, of course, there was nothing wrong with that legally, as it had been expressly permitted in the marriage treaty. But even so, there was a problem. According to one contemporary historian, The princess came with a virtual auxiliary court and its furnishings. Along with her closest companion, Jeanne de Saint-Georges, admittedly a very fine name for someone close to a Queen of England, she brought over a load of other French ladies-in-waiting, a bishop, and 20 other priests. On top of that, he had a huge multitude of servants, artisans, cooks, and other professionals. Since she didn't speak English and was in a foreign court, which had a foreign culture, and religion that she considered heretical, not to mention the fact that she was only 15 years old, this meant that she became extremely influenced by these men and women. The fact that she didn't attend Charles's coronation, which was a terrible move from a public relations perspective, was blamed on these French. When she announced to Charles that she would not attend, they had a furious row and didn't speak to each other for three full days, So we can see here, at this earlier stage, that religion was also alienating her from her husband. As we know, she was influenced from an early age by Carmelites, while now she came under the influence of the Oratorians, a different Catholic order, and they impressed upon her the importance of abstaining from sexual relations on certain dates, and in certain seasons, and during certain religious festivals. This meant that Charles, more often than not, found that his wife was rebuffing his advances, which, unsurprisingly, he did not appreciate. She also refused in these early years to learn English, forcing Charles to conduct conversations with her through her servants. Members of the court and parliament hated seeing these oratorium preachers wandering around royal palaces, looking ostentatiously Catholic in their distinctive robes and making no bones about their disgust of Protestantism. Henrietta's almoner, her most senior cleric, described her as being, quote, a flower surrounded by thorns, which I think best sums up their attitude towards the English. But Henrietta's main problem was the Duke of Buckingham. We've seen quite a few times that men who managed to climb the greasy pole to become the king's chief minister and become trusted above all others do not like to share their influence. They wanted their voice to be the only one in the king's ear. Now, to get there, they usually had the men of the court pretty much covered, but the king's wife especially if she had pretensions of wanting to influence him, as Henrietta did, was a threat to men like Buckingham. Remember how Catherine of Aragon's influence with Henry tanked after the rise of Thomas Wolsey. Remember how Edward Seymour kept Catherine Parr as far away as possible from the boy king Edward VI. Buckingham was on sound historical ground here, but Henrietta was no shrinking violet. The appointment of men and women to the Queen's household became a fierce battleground, where Buckingham fought to insert as many of his own people as possible, including his wife, mother, sister and niece, while Henrietta tried to pack it full of French Catholics. Remember, this was all part of the marriage treaty. She wasn't doing anything that hadn't already been agreed upon. It was said that she could decide upon the composition of her household and that everyone would be French and Catholic. But... What is written on paper and what is reality were two very different things. This row came to a head in the summer of 1626, a year into her reign. She attempted a bit of compromise here and took her appeal directly to the king. Now, who better to explain what happened next than Charles himself, who recorded what happened next in a letter to Henrietta's brother and mother. Quote, it is not unknown, both the French king and his mother, what unkindness and distaste have fallen between my wife and me. She, taking notice that it was now time to make the officers for the revenue, one night when I was abed put a paper in my hand, telling me it was a list of those she desired to be part of her retinue. I took it and said I would read it the next morning. But with all told her by agreement in France, I had the naming of them. She said there were both English and French in the note. I replied that those English I thought fit to serve her, I would confirm. But for the French, it was impossible for them to serve with her in that nature. Then she said all those in that paper had brevets from her mother and herself and that she could admit no other. Then I said it was neither in her mother's power nor hers to admit any without my leave, and that, if she stood upon that, whomsoever she recommended should not come in. Then she bade me plainly to take my lands to myself, for if she had no power to put in whom she would in these places, she would have neither land nor house of me. I can no longer suffer those that I know be the cause and fermenters of these humours about my wife any longer. And he wasn't kidding. A few days later, Charles took the nuclear option and dismissed every French person in Henrietta's household, from her clergy to her ladies and everyone in between. Now, these were fighting words, and to start with, he backed them up. When a few of them refused to leave, including the bishop in her household, who was the de facto French ambassador, Charles sent in troops to forcibly remove them from the palace. But this didn't mean they all went home. About 40 did, but most of them just sort of milled about London, procrastinating like their lives depended on it, refusing to leave and kicking up a lot of trouble. This did not especially please Charles when he heard about it. He instructed Buckingham to get them out. "'Force them away, driving them away like so many wild beasts, "'until ye have shipped them.' and so the devil go with them. Let me hear no answer but of the performance of my command. Despite these extremely bombastic orders, in actual fact Henrietta's household was not completely cleared of French attendance. She managed to hold on to about 20, including a priest and some of her ladies. But even so, this was an enormous blow to Henrietta. She had come over to England as a princess of a European superpower, she had expected to be treated with the reverence that she thought that that entailed instead she was now exposed in a place that she didn't understand married to a king who had violated the marriage agreement and to listen to every word of a man who seemed to want to squash her and reduce her to little more than a decorative ornament in other words things weren't going so well and it is here at the first nadir of her fortunes that we will leave Henrietta Maria for this week. Next time, we will look at how she managed to improve her position and win the heart of her husband, if not that of the people. She would do a lot of the things that we might expect a successful queen to do, and perhaps in normal times she would have become more popular. But these were very far from normal times.